Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. And this morning we're going to be in the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. So if you want to turn there or uh, flip out your phone and uh, get it up on that or whatever, however you get the scriptures this morning, um, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a background and a context to the book of Mark, and then we'll jump in. So Mark is a very fast-paced, almost like a movie-like story. Uh, written by a close associate of Peter, Mark. And uh, it details the life of Jesus from the perspective of Peter. The constant refrain of the early part of Mark is, who is this man, Jesus? Every story seeks to highlight something of his character, something of his identity, which continues to be a bit shrouded in mystery until Peter, in chapter 8, identifies him as the Christ. And from Peter's declaration till the end, the story focuses on Jesus' purpose for coming, his death and resurrection. But we will get to that. So let me pray for us real quick, and we'll jump into the story. Father, would you bless now the preaching of your word? Would you let us lay aside all distractions, and would you affect our hearts? Lord, you promise that your word does not go out empty or void, but it accomplishes the purpose that you have set for it. So, Lord, would you do that this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to look at, we're going to start in verse 21, and I'm going to kind of read a little bit, and then we're going to talk about it. So we're not going to stand and read now, so because we're going to kind of take it a chunk at a time. So starting in chapter 5, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians." And had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. So right now, Jesus has just cast out a legion of demons from a man on the other side of the uh, other side of the lake, and the crowds sort of force Jesus to leave, and he arrives on the other side of the shore, where we pick him up in verse twenty-one, and there's a crowd that's already gathered about him, no doubt wanting him to teach or to perform some sort of miracle, suddenly the crowd begins to step back. They begin to part ways a little bit because Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, a very prominent man, steps forward to come to see Jesus. His daughter is dying, and he needs Jesus to come and heal her. As Jesus uh, agrees to go, I'm sure the buzz throughout the crowd began. He's going to heal her. Let's go watch. And they begin to jostle and push to get closer to this miracle worker that they've heard so much about. But then the text makes this very abrupt change to speak of this woman. Who is this woman? Well, she's nameless in the text, in an abrupt interruption in the narrative. 
She's inserted right in the middle of another story, jarring the structure of the story. And this really is an apt description of her life, an interruption. She suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, the text does not say what caused it, but it is clear that it falls into the categories listed in Leviticus under the cleanliness laws that would make her unclean for 12 years. For 12 years, she has been cut off from society. She has been unclean, unable to enter the temple for worship, unable to touch other people, and unable to go into public without announcing that she is unclean. 12 years being unable to function within the social structure of Israel. 12 years of shame and loneliness. And not only that, but the condition herself must affect her greatly, making her ill and weak and frail, bleeding for 12 years, slowly but surely dying. And it's not as though she has not tried to get better. No, the text says that she has gone to many physicians and tried to get better, but she's only grown worse. One of the commentaries that I read described some of the remedies offered at this time, which included a sudden shock treatment, or drinking wine mixed with various powders like rubber and other things. She would go to any length to be healed so that she could be whole again and clean. But she only grows worse. She is alone, unclean, weak, dying, and bankrupt. She really is as good as dead. She's no different than Jairus' little girl who is quite literally at death's door. And maybe this morning you can relate to some of her physical pain. Maybe you're here this morning and you have suffered for a long time under a chronic pain. Or a disease like cancer that's killing you physically. You will be able to relate to much this woman feels and have the hope of Jesus' power this morning. But let me make a few things clear. The Bible does not teach that having faith in Jesus will necessarily heal you from any physical ailment. Also, here the reference to physicians that she went to see that made her worse is in no way advocating that Christians should not go to the doctor. It's not what the text is saying. This is descriptive of her experience. It's not prescriptive for what Christians should do. Well, this morning, even if you're not suffering from a debilitating physical condition, if you are breathing here this morning... You have a lot in common with this woman. Her debilitating physical illness has left her unclean and as good as dead. And as one born in Adam, as a human being this side of the fall, you have a spiritual illness that makes you unclean before God and as good as dead. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus says that it is not the ceremonial uncleanliness that is important, but shows where true uncleanliness comes from. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. So you this morning are born at death's door. 
The Bible teaches that we are born in sin and that our sin causes death, spiritually and physically separating us from God. Our sin is like an aggressive form of cancer that has left us like this woman, as good as dead. And you and me, like this woman, seek to solve it in so many ways. We run to all sorts of things to find our life, all sorts of physicians that we think will heal this spiritual sickness. Some of the things that we run to are things that God hates, but most of them really are good things. But when we seek to find our life in them, we make them into gods that cannot deliver, idols that we seek to find our life in. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Kim, Tim Keller, not Kim Teller, <laughs> Tim Keller, that's what it is, uh, says, What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imaginations more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. So what are the various physicians that we seek to find life in? Well, maybe your physician is love and relationships, sex, intimacy, being known by another person. Oh, if you could just have that, your life would be better and you would be healed of your brokenness. If you could only have a spouse, they would fix everything. Or maybe a different spouse one that wasn't as messed up as yours, one that didn't disappoint you the way yours does. Or maybe you struggle with being attracted to the same sex, and you think, if only I could pursue those desires, life would be right. Or maybe, maybe that's not it at all. You hate those desires, but if only God would take them away completely and you could desire the opposite sex, life would be right. Whatever your struggle in wanting love is, if you seek your life in people, they will always let you down. So maybe you've recognized this, and so you seek your life through fake relationships, through pornography, hookups, internet relationships, secret fantasies. Personally, I know all too well the dangers of this physician, as I spent many years seeking my healing in her. The seductive promise of life and joy and hidden pleasure held out in pornography Lust and sexual relationships outside of marriage drew me in and left me spiritually broke, without healing, and in worse condition than when I started, still craving life, but having none. Or maybe you're seeking your life in money. You don't want to be a billionaire or anything like that. You just want to be comfortable, be able to sustain your family, provide for them, and be secure. But the amount in your bank account that makes you secure just keeps going up. If I could just have a little bit more, then I'd be secure. And it's not just the desire for more money that shows you're seeking your life in it, but an excessive anxiety about money or not having it can show this. But even if you get it, it will leave you wanting more. King Solomon saw this well when he wrote in Ecclesiastes 5.10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Or maybe you seek your life in comfort and entertainment. Maybe all the sorrows of daily life in a fallen world are just too much to engage with. So you numb yourself with food, alcohol, chocolate, desserts, television, 
social media, the internet. You think as long as you're happy and entertained and laughing, you'll be able to find life and joy. But it just takes more and more, doesn't it, to numb the pain of life in a fallen world. And the pain never really goes away. It's a terrible physician that leaves you worse off than when you started. Or maybe you seek to find your life in your family, in your kids. If they can be successful in everything that you were not, if they do well, then you have life. But when things get hard and your family is tough, you just can't handle it. And the thought of your children having some sort of moral failure, a pregnancy out of wedlock, failing out of high school, some sort of scandal, it would be the end of your life because you're seeking to find your life and your ultimate healing and satisfaction for the brokenness of your life and your family's success. Or maybe it is your, your own career and success. You put in the hours more than anyone else. You say it's to provide a good life for you and your family, but really deep down inside you need it. You need to be recognized for something. You need to find life and wholeness. So you seek it in the things that you're good at, never admitting your faults or your weaknesses, the truth that you don't really have it all together. But even when you get it all, you realize that there's got to be something more to life than this. There has to be more. Or maybe your physician is religion. Your obedience to the moral law of God, your attendance in church makes you feel whole. Your knowledge and your theological accuracy gives you life. And when you fail, when you see your pride and your arrogance or your inner lust or your anger or rage, your gossip, your slander, when these things rise up within you, you're crushed. And you find that your physician, who in this case happens to be you, is a poor one who promises much but apparently didn't get a proper diagnosis. So you try your hardest to be a better version of you. You read your Bible more, pray harder, and it may provide momentary relief, but not long-lasting healing to your spiritual brokenness. Your spiritual discipline can't save you. You can't save you. None of these places can provide you with life or ultimate satisfaction. They cannot save you. If you look to them to provide you life, they will only provide death for you. They will leave you worse off than when you started. Relationships cannot save you. Money cannot save you. Entertainment cannot save you. Family cannot save you. Success cannot save you. And your religious performance cannot save you. So you are left like this woman, without hope of life, unless... Well, let's read on to see what she does. Starting, picking up in verse 27. Is that where we left off? I don't remember. Somebody help me out. 27, yep. There we go. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowds pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. 
But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So what does this woman do? What does she do? Well, this woman who had suffered being an outcast for 12 years pushed her way into the crowd at great personal risk to herself. Why would she do that? Well, whether or not she has some sort of superstitious idea about touching Jesus' garment isn't really the point or the thrust of Mark's narrative. He's concerned with three things that she did. She hears, she comes, she touches. She had heard the reports of Jesus and she thought, finally I can have wholeness. I can have life. And motivated by that desire, she came to Jesus, fighting through the crowds to have an encounter with him. And she thought that even if she could just touch his garments, she would be healed of her disease. She had heard of his power to overcome disease and to reverse the curse that this world was under. And she must go to him to be healed. So the question for you this morning, Mark's gospel is great at bringing the narratives right to your face and asking you, what will you do? The question is, have you heard, have you come, and have you touched? If you have not heard, let me tell you the story from the gospel of Mark, who this Jesus is. As I said, really, this is the theme of the whole book of Mark. We see in each story a little bit more of who Jesus is, that he's forgiving sins, that he has power over disease, over winds and waves, over demons, and over death itself. Each episode in this story asks the question, who then is this Jesus? And each episode answers that this is in fact the one true God of the universe, who has come in the flesh to reverse the curse and seek and save the lost, to bring wholeness to this world, to bring life to the dead, life to those who, like us, are spiritually dead. And it all climaxes, as I said, in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, when Peter says, you are the Christ. After this, Jesus immediately begins teaching about his death and resurrection. And it focuses, the story focuses on the last week of his life. And then right after his death, his crucifixion on the cross, We get another description of who he is, this time from one of the Roman guards who watched the crucifixion and says, Truly, this man was the Son of God. These are the two clearest statements of who Jesus is from the Gospel of Mark, the one from Peter and the one from this Roman guard, which is interestingly how the book starts, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All of this, the whole structure of Mark is screaming to us that Jesus can only be known as we look to him at the cross. As we look to him at his death and triumphant resurrection. So now, all of us are without excuse. We have heard of him. But have you come to him? To come to him, we must not only hear about his power, but also come to see our need in light of our true condition. 
Two summers ago, I went out to Colorado for the summer for our new staff training with uh, Campus Crusade for Christ. And right before, two weeks before I left, I had my appendix removed and uh, just was cleared to drive and drove out there. Um, And uh, right when we got there, I was feeling pretty terrible. And so I tried everything I could to come up with any excuse to how, what, what was causing me to feel terrible. I blamed it on the altitude. I blamed it on lack of sleep, dehydration, whatever I could. But finally, I agreed to go to the urgent care to see what was wrong. And the doctor I basically went in to confirm my, it's not that bad diagnosis, just get some rest. And I went in, and the doctor was like, dude, you've got to go to the hospital right now and get a CT scan. And sure enough, I went to the hospital, and I had an abscess had formed, I, and my infection had returned, and I spent three days in the hospital then, and then later on in the summer. But anyway, that's not the point. The point of the story is, it could have been a lot worse had I not gone in for an accurate diagnosis. I was trying to diagnose myself, but I needed an accurate diagnosis of who I was so that I could get real treatment and recover This morning, you need an accurate diagnosis of who you are spiritually. Apart from Jesus, you are spiritually dead. And every place and person you look to give you spiritual life will not be able to provide life for you. Only Jesus can provide life for you. Only Jesus can give you spiritual life. Finally, have you touched You have heard a lot about who Jesus is, maybe, and what he's done. But have you actually risked it all to press through the crowd and get to Jesus? Have you touched him by faith? Because actually we have much more than this woman. Sometimes we think, but she was able to touch Jesus. But we have much more. We have the scriptures, the fullness of God's revelation to us. And the Holy Spirit to illuminate for us in the scriptures the face of Jesus Christ. So our touch of him by faith, by trusting in him, unites us to him. So that our sin and spiritual sickness can be overcome by his power. Her faith to us really is an example of saving faith. She hears the reports about Jesus. She comes to him and she touches by faith. Trusting that he can give her life. Have you done that? Are you looking to Jesus to give you life? And have you come to him in faith, risking it all to cling to the only one who can give you life? Jesus. Well, how will Jesus respond to her? You see in the text that she is instantly healed. Now, she may not have a complete knowledge of who Jesus is at this point, or a very strong faith, but she has faith, and the object of her faith, Jesus, is infinite in power to save her. You see how risky this was for her? She has touched this rabbi, and not only him, but probably many others as she jostled for position through this crowd. She, according to Levitical law, would make Jesus unclean. By touching him. So she has come at great personal risk. But that's not what happens. Jesus doesn't become unclean. His holiness and purity overcomes her impurity and defilement. His power overcomes her weakness and she is healed. 
and he can overcome your weakness in himself as well. Jesus overcame our spiritual diseases that cause death, our sin, by taking it on himself on the cross and bearing the wrath of God against it in himself. And then he conquered over it by rising from the dead so that he could give eternal life to any and all who would come to him for this life. Any who, as we said, would touch him by faith to be united to him so that his holiness and his power could overcome our impurity and our weakness. Well, after healing this woman, Jesus stops and looks around and asks, Who touched me? The disciples at this point are like, Jesus, what are you talking about? Who touched you? There are so many people here. And oh, by the way, did everyone forget we're on a rescue mission? We're going to save this little girl. Why are you stopping now? But as he asks the question, she comes forward and shares how she had went through the crowd and shares, really, it says the whole truth. You can hear the gasps in the crowd. They know this woman. Ugh, not her. She touched us. Why would she do this? Why would she come forward and share everything? Because that's what a healed person does. When you've been healed, you tell everyone what has happened. She's whole again. Why would she have any reason to hide who she is? Friends, if you have been made right with God through Jesus Christ, why do you hide your weaknesses from others, your sins and your spiritual sickness? We should be a community that emulates this woman, sharing the whole truth of who we are, spiritually sick people who have been made whole by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus but who still struggle to live as though we're made whole. Let's be honest with the whole truth of who we are with one another. Because our right standing has been made secure in Christ Jesus, we can be secure in sharing with one another. So as she comes forward, after she shares this whole story, Jesus at this point could rebuke her for touching people, right? He's a rabbi, she's broken Levitical law. But instead of doing that, he says four wonderful things to her. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. Four wonderful things. Daughter, an encounter with Jesus by faith brings you into the family of God. You see, for the last 12 years, this woman, as we said, has been an interruption in everyone's life. She's an interruption into Mark's narrative, right in the middle of another story, and a huge interruption in the life of Jairus and his daughter. Because immediately following this passage, messengers come to say that the little girl has died. Jesus, you were too late. But oh no, she is no interruption to Jesus. No, she is exactly where he planned her to be so that he could heal her, make her faith depend upon him, and so that this little girl would die, so that he could go and show that he's not only master of disease, but he's master of death, that he could raise her from dead, stretching Jairus' faith as well and displaying his power. 
Jesus really is the interruption here. He's interrupting her life, Jairus' life, Jairus' daughter's life, and all of life since the fall with divine grace and power, beginning to reverse the curse that had been placed on humanity. Has he interrupted into your life with divine grace? And if he has, will you respond like this woman with faith? The second thing he says to her is, your faith has made you well. Faith is how grace, divine grace, is accessed. She exhibits this faith. Trust in Jesus and him alone to heal her, and he does. And if we trust in Jesus alone for life, spiritual life now, and eternal, physical, glorified life in the new heavens and new earth, he will give it to us. So what kind of faith should we have? Well, faith like this woman. Faith in the impossible. That God would take on flesh, become a man, die for our sins, and rise again so that the curse would be reversed. That we would be forgiven of our sin and have life. Eternal life. Faith that this world is not the way it was meant to be, but that Jesus will return and make all things new again. Thirdly, he says, go in peace. Jesus is beginning to break into this present darkness to redeem all things. It's the beginning of the great renewal. Revelation 22, verse 3 says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. This is in reference to the the city of God that John sees in Revelation descend upon the earth in the new heavens and new earth. After Jesus returns and brings the fullness of his kingdom, no longer will anything be accursed. That's a glorious promise. And we see in our passage this morning that Jesus is beginning this work. That his power, his resurrection power, is breaking into the world to begin to reverse this curse. And one day when Jesus returns and makes this fully true... He will wipe away every tear and make all things new. He will take away all the pain and illness and all the death of this fallen world, and we will be whole in Jesus, free to worship him in glory. Finally, Jesus says to her, Be healed of your disease. Jesus healed her. Boom. In an instant, he healed her. She didn't pay him for it. She didn't earn it. She didn't even deserve it. But she went to him in faith, broken, and came back whole. Now, how foolish would it be for her the very next day to go back to all those old physicians to seek to be healed of that disease she was just healed of? Yet, isn't this what we do as Christians all the time? Again, not with our physical illnesses, but with our spiritual illnesses. We know that the idols that we have set up in our hearts cannot save us. And if we've been ultimately healed in Jesus spiritually, why do we run back to these places thinking we can find life in them? They cannot save us. Only Jesus can. And if you are in Christ, it is done. It's free. Like this woman, you don't have to pay for it. You don't have to earn it. You certainly don't deserve it because of our sin. 
But if you come to Jesus in faith, admitting your spiritual bankruptcy and are trusting in him, you have been made whole, whole, healed, eternal life welling up within you. So now, what would it look like if if we're healed fully and ultimately satisfied in Jesus? What would it look like to go back to all those things that we listed, the physicians that we listed, and to actually use them for the glory of God and the good of others instead of trying to find our life and satisfaction in them? Well, our love would be selfless. We would love other people for their good and for God's glory and not our gain. When it comes to money, we would radically and sacrificially give for the advancement of God's kingdom. When it comes to comfort and entertainment, we would have a spirit of thankfulness to God, moderation, and holiness. When it comes to our families, we would give our families to God, trusting Him with them and not seeking to find our life in them. We would love them well and let them be who God wants them to be and not who we want them to be. When it comes to our career and our success, we would be marked by humility and self-sacrifice, using our success for the glory of God and the good of others and not self-advancement. And when it comes to our religious pursuits, it would not be a pursuit of righteousness or morality to gain God's favor, but a transformation into the image of Christ and His righteousness because your sin has been overcome by your union with Christ and it has no power over you. All of this can only happen as we continually remind ourselves of God's power displayed to us in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the place ultimately where God shows his power to us and gives us a sure foundation to know that we can run to Jesus in faith for the healing and wholeness of our broken lives. Let's pray together. Father, we trust you this morning and we ask that you would root these truths deep within us this morning, that we would trust in Jesus and that we would seek to find our life in him and not the broken cisterns that we hew out for ourselves. Lord, would you remind us of these truths and would you transform us into the image of Christ this morning? that we would be sent out for your glory and the good of your church. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.